0: Well, you guys can turn to the book of 1 Peter, not 2 Timothy, but 1 Peter. I felt inspired to go in a different direction this week for our message based on the mood that we are all experiencing in our country right now. Everybody is angry all the time. You see it everywhere you turn. People are angry about politics, people are angry about race, people are angry about Alabama football. People <laughs> are just angry. And so this morning, we're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about the polar opposite of what you see every time you turn on the news. We're going to learn from Peter about how to live the good life of love. In the book of 1 Peter, just to, to frame it for you. Peter tells us how to live the good life, the life that God wants for us, a life that satisfies us and is full of significance and peace and joy. And as he unfolds for us what the good life looks like, he spends a good bit of the book talking about love. Because love is essential to the good life. So we're going to focus on one of the passages in this book this morning that teaches us about love. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 22. Peter says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. To live the good life... You must learn to love one another, to love the people of God. Love for each other is essential to the good life. Now, if you're anything like me, you've been hearing that message as long as you've been alive. Your parents told you that you need to love one another, your Sunday school teacher taught you that you gotta love other people, your pastor's been teaching you that you gotta love other people. So you are tempted to tune out yet another sermon. On the subject of love. Before you tune me out, I would remind you of the greatest sports movie that has ever been made Hoosiers. If you've not seen it, then your homework this morning is to go home and rent Hoosiers because it really is the greatest sports movie ever. It tells the story of the 1954 basketball team and their unlikely rise to the state championship of Indiana. They're a team called the Milan Indians from a tiny little town that had every disadvantage. They were relatively small from a tiny little town with very few players. They were undisciplined and unskilled. It looked like the season was just going to be a slaughter for them. But then they got a new coach played by Gene Hackman. And the coach took him back to the basics. If you've seen the movie, he made them dribble and pass thousands and thousands and thousands of times. He would not let them shoot just dribble and pass. When they were playing the game, they weren't allowed to shoot the ball until they had passed a certain number of times. He made them practice the fundamentals until they became second nature. And the result was that they became the the most disciplined and successful team in the state and they won. And the point of the Hoosiers movie is that we in life never outgrow the fundamentals. As it is in basketball, so it is in life. If you learn to practice the fundamentals of life, then you do well. And in Christianity, there is nothing more fundamental than learning to love other people. That is our dribbling in the Christian life. If you want to live a life that is good, that is successful, you must learn to love other people exceptionally well. And so this morning, we're going to talk about love. And let's begin with a definition. What is love? Now, most of you are thinking, baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. That's okay. It's great song lyrics. But how often do people in our society actually stop and ask themselves that question? What is this thing we call love? Now, in English, we have one word, love. In Greek, they had many words, all meant love, but looked at it from different facets. In Greek, the two most common words used in ancient Greek society for love was was ophile, which means a, a love based on affection or emotion, and eros, meaning sexual love. So for the Greeks, those were the two most common forms of love, just like they are in our society. For Americans today, that's usually what we mean by the word love. We mean romance or sex. What's interesting, what's actually fascinating, is that those two words for love are hardly ever used in the Bible. The word eros, never used, not even once, to describe love. Ophile, only used a handful of times, hardly ever. So um, if you're looking at an NASB Bible, and you look at just your New Testament, you will find the word in English, love, L-O-V-E, 287 times in the New Testament. And of those 287 times, only five of them are about the love between a man and a woman. 1.7% of the love in the Bible is what we think of as romantic or sexual love. That leaves 98.3% of those 287 uses of the word love that are about God's love for us, our love for God, or our love for one another. Now, I draw a couple conclusions from those statistics. The first is, if you are single you are not missing out on what God means by love. Only 1.7% of the New Testament doesn't apply to you. 98.3% does. You're not missing out on love. The second conclusion that I draw is that we live in a society that misunderstands what God means by the word love. Just like the Greeks Americans of today are so fixated on ophile and eros, affectionate love, romantic love, sexual love, that they have missed out on the better, deeper forms of love that God has in mind for us. Now, there's nothing wrong with romance or sex. Those are good things. But neither of those are the highest or best form of love, the kind of love that God talks about Throughout the Bible. So this morning, we're going to discover what God means by this English word love. Now, in verse 22, the word love appears twice. It's actually translating two different Greek words. The two primary words that God uses in the Bible to describe this thing called love. The first of those words is Philadelphia for which we have the city named Philadelphia. It's named after this Greek word. Philadelphia in Greek, it means brotherly or sisterly love. It's the kind of love that you have for a sibling, a biological sibling. The New Testament takes that sibling love and expands it to refer to your love for brothers and sisters in Christ, for the church family, for other believers, The way that we love one another is Philadelphia. It's family kind of love. So God uses this word, which was just used of families in the ancient world. He uses it to describe us because he wants us to love one another just like we love our family. How do you love your family? Well, family love is unconditional lifelong love. Because you're stuck with your family. You got to love them. And so you learn to love them with unconditional lifelong love. I have one sibling. His name is Matt. He's three years younger than me. Matt when we were growing up, had an uncanny skill of pushing my buttons. He could make me angry, and he would do that occasionally. And one day, he pushed all of my buttons, and I got very angry. I lost my temper. I grabbed what was at hand and threw it at him. And unfortunately, we were in the garage. And so what was at hand was the stone grinding wheel that attached to my dad's drill. It left a nice permanent scar right across his forehead that he still has today. Now, if Matt and I were just acquaintances, that would have been the end of our relationship. I would not have heard from him again until his lawyer served me papers. But we're not acquaintances, we're brothers. And brothers love one another through thick and thin. Brothers forgive each other. Brothers stay committed to each other. And that's how God wants us to love one another. With Philadelphia, brotherly, sisterly love. We're family. We're together forever and God wants us to love each other that way. So that's the first word used in the verse, Philadelphia. The second word that is used in Greek for love, translated love in English, is a word many of you have heard before, agape. Agape is a kind of love that the Greeks hardly ever talked about. You'll find very few uses of the word agape in ancient Greek literature. When you do see it, it always refers to the highest possible form of love. A love that is absolutely devoted and sacrificial. Not surprisingly, that's the most common love you'll find in the Bible. Greeks hardly ever talked about it. The Bible talks about it all the time. Agape love is used most often of God, the love within the Trinity, how the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father, of the love that God has for human beings, how God loves us. Agape love. When we look at what this agape love of God is, we see it in the cross. The cross is the definition of agape love. When you look at the cross, what you see is that agape love is an unconditional love that is expressed through self-sacrifice. That's how agape works. It is love expressed through self-sacrifice. It's how the Son, Jesus, sacrificed himself for us. That is agape on display and so when you look at agape love what you find is that agape love is always costly love you cannot have agape unless you pay a price cost is always involved and so jesus himself tells us in john 15 greater love greater agape has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends the essence of agape or godlike love is sacrifice. You lay down your rights, your desires, your possessions, your comfort, even your own life for the good of the other person. That's the nature of love, self-sacrifice. And so when you look at this thing called agape, what you realize is that agape love is not based on a feeling or an emotion. It's based on a choice. That's what love is. That's actually what our society most misunderstands about love. It is not a chemical reaction in your brain. It is not an emotion. It is not a feeling, though the feelings may come, Love at its core is a choice. It is an action. True love is always an action. It's something that you do. The nature of true love is sacrifice. You sacrifice your rights, your desires, your comfort, your life for the good of the other person. That's the basic characteristic of true love. Now, Peter tells us some things about true love here in verse 22. He says that it is enduring. In the NAS, he uses the word fervently, to love fervently. It means that that you have committed love for another person. You're going to love them no matter what happens. That's what it means to love someone fervently, enduringly. You're never going to stop loving them. Paul talks about it this way in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love, true love, agape love, Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So if there is love between two people and that love comes to an end, then it was not agape love. Because agape love, by its very definition, is unconditional. There is no condition that could be met that would cause that love to be withdrawn. True love is absolutely unconditional. Never-ending love. That's the kind of love that God has for us. The second thing that Peter tells us about this love is that it is from the heart. In other words, it's sincere. There's a lot of people who pretend to love other people because it makes them look good. Well, that's not love. That's selfishness. Wearing a hypocritical mask. That's all that is. True love always seeks the good of the other person, even if they don't know that you love them. Actually, God loves when we do something loving in secret. That's his favorite form of agape love. When you sacrificially do something for someone whom you love and they never know about it. I once came back from vacation in the middle of summer, I think it was August, and I got off the plane and felt the heat, and all the way driving home from the airport, I lamented the fact that when I got home, I had to mow my lawn. I knew it would be incredibly high, I was like, what a great ending to the vacation. Get out there, sweat, and mow your lawn in the heat of August. I get home, and somebody had mowed it, edged it, weeded it, everything. So I look around for a note. There's no notes. Look around for clues. There's no clues. To this day, I have no idea who mowed my lawn. That is agape. It is love done for the good of another without any thought of a favor being returned. I don't even know who did it. That's how God loves us. That's agape love. That's what God wants us to have for one another. So. To live the good life, we must learn to love one another with Philadelphia, that is family love, and agape, that is sacrificial love. That's how you live the good life. So the rest of this passage that we're going to look at this morning, it's going to describe that love for us. It's going to help us understand it and practice it, and it's going to get very practical. And the rest of our passage this morning, Peter's going to lay out for us the prerequisite of love. So what has to be true first for you to be able to love with agape and Philadelphia. Then he's going to lay out the motivation for love. Why should we love one another like this? And then he's going to give us a method for growing love when we get into chapter 2. How do you actually grow your Philadelphia and agape for one another? You'll get very practical. So let's walk through that. We're going to look at the prerequisite, the motivation, and the method of love. So the prerequisite, what needs to be true in our lives for us to be able to truly love one another? Well, look back at verse 22, just the beginning of it. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls. A phrase that starts with the word sense in English tells you that this is a prerequisite. Peter's telling you something that must be true first before you can do the rest of the verse. So you can't love one another until the first part of the verse is true, until you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls. But what in the world does that mean? Well, obedience to the truth in Peter always means to believe the gospel. To obey truth means to believe truth. Peter uses that phrase often. Obedience to the truth means that you hear the truth about Jesus and you respond to it in faith. You choose to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. The result is that your soul will be purified. And that idea of a a purified soul, it means that sin is removed. Your sin is forgiven and it is removed and now in purity the result is you're able to really love other people. And so Peter's point is this divine love, this agape love, this Philadelphia love, it really is only possible for those whose sins have been forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to live a good life of divine love, you you must first trust in Jesus. There is no other way. you got to believe. That Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could be forgiven and have eternal life. The moment that you believe that, love becomes possible for you. Okay, so love, true love, it begins with belief in the gospel. That's the prerequisite. Now let's talk about the motivation. Why should we love one another? Because love is not easy. Love is really hard. Why should you put forth the sacrificial effort to love other people? Well, that's where Peter goes next. Look at verse 23. He says, For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. That's pretty complicated little passage there. Peter's making a profound point. It's kind of complicated how he gets there. Peter wants you to understand if you've trusted in Jesus, you've been born twice. And these two births that you've experienced are very different. The first birth, your biological birth, it was a birth out of flesh and blood. It originated in flesh and blood. It made you part of a biological family. But because it was a birth that originated in flesh and blood, and because flesh and blood don't last forever, well, the family that you became part of through your first birth will come to an end. It's kind of sad for all of us who are parents. But we have to face that fact. My grandparents have died. Their participation in our biological family has come to an end. One day my parents will die. One day I will die. My family will come to an end through death because flesh and blood don't last forever. But for those of us who've trusted in Jesus, we've been born again. We've experienced a second birth and this one is spiritual. And our spiritual birth originated not in flesh and blood, but in the word of God, in scripture. This is what caused you to be born again, the words of truth. And the word of God is forever. It's eternal. It never passes away. And so the family that you become part of through your faith in the gospel is a forever family. That's what Peter's point is. This family, the church family, this will never end. Even though your biological family will end at death, your spiritual family will last for eternity. We will be brothers and sisters with one another forever. And so Peter's point is, why should you learn to love one another now in this life? Because you're going to be family forever. You got to start learning to love the people in this room because you're going to be seeing a lot of each other forever okay so just very practically look at the person on your left real quick now look at the person on your right if the three of you are all believers you're going to see that person for the next infinite billions of years now depending on who you are looking at they that may be good news or bad news right (laughs) you may be thinking this isn't what i wanted this morning well here's the really really good news The moment that you wake up in heaven, your sin nature is removed. And so you become an infinitely more loving and lovable person. Okay, so you're really going to want to love the person to your left and the person to your right. You're going to be with each other forever. And so you might as well begin to learn to love one another now. And I think what Peter is trying to get us to understand is that in the church, with our church family, we're meant to have family relationships with each other, not camp relationships. Think back to summer camp. Many of you went to summer camp as a kid and they put you in a cabin for a week with like nine other little boys or little girls. And one of the first things that you did when you got into your cabin is you figured out who of those nine other little boys or little girls was going to be your friend and who wasn't. And, and really, the first thing you did is the, is the latter of those. You looked around and figured out who you want to avoid. There's the mean guy. I do not want to be around him. And there's the smelly kid. I don't even want to be in the same room with him. And there's the uber-athletic guy. And I don't even want to stand next to him or I'm going to look like a dweeb. And so you weed out these people that you want to avoid. And you can do that for a week. Your parents are coming back in one week. You can avoid those three guys for a week, but that doesn't work well with family. Some of you have parents or kids or aunts or uncles or cousins or grandparents that you do not really like. You you really would prefer not to be in the room with them. For whatever reason, they annoy you, but guess what? They're your family. You're going to see him for Thanksgiving in just a little while, and then Christmas, and then New Year's, and then Easter, and on and on through the rest of your life. And so, if you're wise, at some point you just say, Well, this man or this woman, they're part of my family. I cannot cut them out of my life, I cannot avoid them. So, I need to learn how to love them. And that's Peter's point. We're family. We're going to be with each other for eternity. And so we need to learn to love one another. We need to put forth the effort to learn how to get along well with each other. Because we're going to be seeing a lot of each other. So that's our motivation. Learning to love one another because this family is forever. Okay, now let's get really practical. We know we need to learn to love one another. But how do we actually grow love? Because it's difficult to love unlovely people, and we're all unlovely in our own special way. And so how do you cross that barrier and learn to truly love one another from the heart? Well, Peter's going to give us a method at the beginning of chapter 2, a method for growing love. How do you develop love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, the first step that he's going to give us is that we need to learn how to avoid the sins that spoil love. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 2. Peter says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. He lists out a number of relational sins that if we allow those sins to exist in our life, they will ruin our love for one another. When he says get rid of it in Greek, it's the word for brushing dirt off yourself. So get rid of these things. Don't let them be part of your life. Don't let them cling to you. And then he begins to list off a number of sins. Malice. Malice means a mean spirit. You're the kind of person who is vicious towards other people. So malice, it means that either you want harm to come to someone or when you see harm come to someone, you're secretly happy about that. So a rival fails and you feel good about that. That's malice. But love is the opposite of that. Agape love only rejoices in good. When good comes to your rival, you rejoice in that. That's, that's what God wants for you. You never, ever rejoice in harm coming to anyone. So you cast off malice. You cast off deception. Uh, Deception means that you take advantage of someone either by lying to them or by not telling them the full truth. So, So you are trying to get them to believe something that is not true so that you can have an advantage over them. Love is the opposite. Love and truth always go together in Scripture. You can't have one without the other. Love always tells the truth, even at great personal cost. Love is always honest. So you cast off deception. You cast off hypocrisy. Hypocrisy comes from a Greek word that meant mask. a, A hypocrite was an actor who wore a mask in a play. The idea of hypocrisy is that you put a mask on when the world sees you so they don't see the real you. Love doesn't wear masks. Love always is authentic. Love, true love, agape love, is always honest with others about who we are and what we're dealing with. So you cast off the masks. You cast off hypocrisy. You cast off envy. Envy is related to jealousy. You can put those two words together. It means that you crave something that someone else has or you resent the fact that they have it and you don't. And that something that they have and you don't, it could refer to lots of different things. It could be a possession, it could be status, it could be a relationship, it could be any number of things that someone has and you don't, and that makes you angry. You crave having what they have. Now, envy is a tough one because it is so insidious in our society. There's actually a whole multi-billion dollar industry that is dedicated to stoking envy in you. We don't call it an envy industry. We call it advertising. Advertising is designed to stoke envy and jealousy in you because they know that envy moves product. Envy gets you spending. And so you live in a world where envy is always stirred up and you must learn to fight that. You must learn to find contentment in what God has given you. And you must learn to rejoice when a friend gets something that you want. That's a hard thing to learn how to do. It's one of the hardest things in life. When a coworker gets promoted and you don't, God is saying rejoice for them. When a neighbor gets a bigger house and you don't, God is saying rejoice for them. Rejoice for those who are blessed and take contentment in what you already have. True love casts off envy. Final thing on the list. In the NASB, it's slander. That's kind of an odd word. A better translation would just be gossip. Cast off gossip. True love never participates in gossip. Gossip is when you speak to someone about someone else in a way that hurts that other person. And gossip, there's a lot of reasons why people gossip. Sometimes it's because you want to hurt that other person, you want vengeance on them, but more often than not, it's just because you want to look important. You want to show that you're the kind of person who's in the know, and so you tell this juicy piece of gossip. Gossip, it, it feels like something that's out there in the world, but it's actually very common in the church, too. There's lots of churches that have been infected by gossip in the name of prayer requests. Hey, I, I want to tell you something about this other person so you can pray for them and then you share your juicy piece of news. Gossip goes unchecked in lots of churches because it makes us feel good to know this information and to get to share it with someone else. But that's not love. I think the the visual for you, when you think about love, love is a vault. Love is a vault. And when information goes in, it does not come out unless it would be good for another person. Okay, and unless you, you look around and you say, well, I know something about somebody being hurt. Well, then you go talk to the appropriate authorities. But usually that's not the case. You just happen to find out something embarrassing or salacious about someone. Well, true love locks that into a vault and doesn't let it out. You're going to protect the reputation and life of the other person. That's what love does. Never participates in gossip. So if you want to grow love, the first thing that you have to do is you have to cast off all of these sins that spoil love. Okay, So verse 1, cast off all of these sins. Don't let them be part of your life. If there were any of these particular sins that we talked about and you felt convicted over that, you were like, oh, I kind of I wish you wouldn't have said that. Well, that's probably God getting your attention and showing you, hey, this is an area of your life that you need to work on. You've got to cut that sin out because you're not going to grow love until you bring gossip or hypocrisy or malice to an end. Okay, So first, you cast off those sins that spoil love. The second step to growing love is you pursue that which does develop true love, and that's the word of God. Look at verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. The, the pure milk of the word that is simply the word of God. And just like milk can help a body to grow biologically, so the word of God can help a person grow spiritually. And Peter tells us to, to long for or crave the milk of the word. He wants us to long for time in this book just like an infant longs for a bottle of milk. And so think about how an infant wants milk. An infant's desire for a bottle of milk is not just a rational decision. Infants don't think to themselves, well, gosh, I'm an infant, so I guess I'm supposed to drink milk. And according to the pediatrician in the white coat, I'm supposed to drink like 24 ounces a day or whatever it is. And so pass me the bottle because that's really what I should do. There's no infant that does that. Infants crave milk From the core of their being. They don't have to rationalize it. In fact if you are running 30 seconds late getting them that bottle. They will scream at you as if the world was coming to an end. That's how badly they desire milk. And God is saying he wants us to desire his word in the same way. He wants our desire for scripture to be as passionate as an infant's desire for a bottle of milk. Why? Because as you pursue the word, the end of verse 2, you will grow in respect to salvation. That's a common theme that Peter talks about in Peter's mind. You've received salvation through faith in Jesus, but now that you've received it, it's time to let it grow. Salvation is about much more to Peter than just going to heaven. It's about God saving love coming into your life and growing you to be more and more like Jesus. So now that you've received the gospel, now let love grow in your life. And you let love grow by spending more and more time in the word. So very practically, when a couple comes to me for marriage counseling, one of the first things that I will ask them is if they're in a small group that is studying the word of God. The reason I ask that is because this book can grow love between a man and a woman. This book can grow love between parents and kids. This book can grow love between roommates or coworkers or neighbors. This book is supernatural. It is the word of God. It is soil in which love grows in your life. And so if you want to become the kind of person who loves other people, you must spend time drinking from this book. It's very practically speaking. If you want to become the kind of person who loves other people well, you got to open this book on a regular basis. If you're not doing that already, then just start with five minutes. Five minutes a day that you're going to open and read in this book. If it's too hard to find time to read, there are lots of apps that will actually read the Bible to you. So get one of those apps on your phone and when you're driving to work, play it so that you can listen to the word of God. Now at first you may be thinking, I don't know what it means. I don't know what to do with that. That's okay. Peter doesn't say that you have to understand all of it. He simply says, long for it. Drink from this book and it will transform you and grow love within you. This book is, in a sense, magical. It is supernatural. It is the word of God. And if you will drink from it regularly, it will grow agape in Philadelphia in you. So, very practically today, if you want to live the good life that God has called you for, you've <laughs> got to learn to love other people, particularly this group of other people, this family, this church you got to learn to love one another, and by love we mean family, committed, lifelong love that sacrifices. You've got to be making the choice to sacrifice your rights and desires and comfort for the good of other people. If you want to learn how to love like that, love like Jesus has loved you, then cast off those sins that spoil love. Look at that list in verse 1. Whatever of those sins is convicting you, confess that to God, ask him to to deliver you from that sin in your life, and then begin to drink regularly and deeply from the word of God, and it will supernaturally grow love in your heart. That's what we need. That's what our society needs above all else, that we would grow in agape and Philadelphia for one another. Let's pray that God would help us to love one another like Jesus loves us. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are a God of love. We thank you, in fact, that in the book of 1 John, you have told us that you are love. It's not just that you are loving, but you are the definition of love. You are the source of love. Your character is loving all the time in every way. We praise you and thank you that you are love. We thank you that your son Jesus in love died for us and rose from the dead so that we could be set free from malice and envy and anger and jealousy and hypocrisy and gossip. We thank you that Jesus died to set us free from all of the sins that ruin love. And we pray that now that Jesus has set us free, we pray that through your word and through your spirit, we pray that you would grow us in true divine love. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would grow Philadelphia in our hearts, that we would love other believers genuinely and deeply with unconditional lifelong love. We pray, God, that you would grow agape in our hearts, that we would make the choice to sacrifice for others, that we would make the choice to love them even when it costs us and Lord as our country moves through a period in its history full of strife and anger and bitterness and hatred we pray that you would help us to be different We pray, Father, that our character, our attitude, our online posts would be saturated with agape in Philadelphia. We pray, God, that when the world sees us, your people, that they would see a group of people who are utterly and radically different than the world around us that we would return hate with love, that we would return ridicule with kindness, that we would truly, deeply, and sacrificially love others just as your son Jesus has loved us. Help us to be a family bound together forever in love, we pray, through the power and for the glory of your son Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you guys. Walk in love this week.